Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the possible fallacy of being cloud agnostic. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migration, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. So I'm not entirely sure which one of us wanted to do cloud agnosticism as the topic this week, but it's a really good one. I will uh, I will cop to that. It was uh, my doing. Um, not too long ago, I was interviewing, and I got the job and will be changing soon, but that's not for here. Um, and during the interview process, I was talking to uh, somebody, and they were talking about what they're working on right now, and one of them topics he brought up was he was trying to abstract things so that it would be cloud agnostic and, and i did something groaned. you shouldn't do in an interview and i went off on him because <laughs> i <laughs> i don't think that's a good idea and i will admit to then bringing it up for a topic and uh, so this is my doing one of the consulting clients i had recently was really big on trying to build a system that was quote-unquote cloud agnostic and they attempted to choose a bunch of tools and and things and practices that focused on trying to be cloud agnostic. And yeah, that was interesting. None of it was really cloud agnostic in my opinion. But yeah, it was weird. Yeah, and I I worked with Jack on that and yeah, that was it was fun because it added I don't know, a dozen layers that you had to get through between what you were actually working on and what got provisioned in. There are some the... really neat things there that I'm proud to have under my belt now. Um, but the whole concept of being cloud agnostic, um, yeah, that wasn't there. Well, and I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Ken, where it's, you, you're adding layers of, uh, abstractions to to make yourself agnostic but in the same sentence you're trying to say well we're trying to do this to reduce complexity or to make it where we can easily switch but in the end you're still locking yourself to something it's just now it's not your provider it's your tooling or pick your other poison well and it the what bothered me doing it was there were the, all these layers and most of the time was spent trying to figure out how to work around a layer, how to get somebody's tool to do something that it didn't support. And it actually just added so much complexity and so much time. And in the end, I don't know that it really bought anything. Now, I don't think we, I, well, I know while I was involved, we didn't try to spin everything up in another cloud to see how well it worked, but the complexity added was immense. And I think a problem that most of us face is that in some form or fashion, we're all going to be multi-cloud or multi-provider in some, in some way, whether we're a hundred percent AWS shop or not, there's going to be other aspects of vendors that we integrate with or other parts of our infrastructure that, that touch other things. So my current employer does a lot of Kubernetes development and a lot of Kubernetes um, work because we, Sysdig does a 
a monitoring product that does cloud native stuff and really digs into the KubeState APIs and pulls out a lot of like low level kernel metrics about everything happening in your containers and everything else. And we deploy in customers' environments, we provide an installer, we run it in various cloud environments, and every environment is a little bit different. Every environment has its own unique custom challenges and things that make it hard to map from one thing to the next. And it's it's interesting to hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, we can, we can run it in Amazon and we can run it in Azure or we can run it in Google. <laughs> but when you get down to something like Rackspace or SoftLayer or... Linode. Well, yeah. Th- there are all these other environments and they all have various strengths and weaknesses. Amazon famously has a huge number of primitives. Google has a lot fewer. I think Google's are a little better done than Amazon's. And so when you're trying to get down to a base level of all the cloud providers that we care about support X, well, hmm, they all do IAM a little bit differently. So does your tool abstract down to the lowest common denominator? Does it just mean that in some places it doesn't work all that well? How do you, how do you slice that one? And reading up on for, for tonight, it was a lot, that was a lot of the negatives about doing it were if you're going to do it, you do it for the lowest common denominator. And now you're not using so much, so many features of any one of the providers. You don't have enough common features that way to be able to stand up uh, EKS or GKE or whatever the Kubernetes equivalent is in that platform to build that containerized workflow. And that was the the project uh, Jack and I were on. Instead of using EKS, or they were spinning up their own stuff, if I'm remembering correctly. Bring, you know, it well, just... we use, we use the, the cloud-provided Kubernetes container, or Kubernetes runtime as much as possible to run our platform. And we, we plug into customers and do whatever else they need. And even with that, there are so many cases where, no, on this particular one... We don't trust how they've implemented stateful sets, or we don't trust how they're doing this, or we're having lots of failures with these particular networking things. So we've we've taken this piece out of Kubernetes for now. And then, well, now you have, again, custom environments. Kubernetes is a great tool. It helps level the playing field, but it's not cloud agnostic. And and I think that's a, a, a point as well, is that um, there's a difference between cloud agnostic and then also being multi-provider in terms of like D, uh for disaster recovery or uh, high availability. And I guess the, the side of the fence that I'm, I am on is I am totally cool being multi-provider, but I am all for using the best tools for the job for that specific provider. So like, for instance, I think Google probably has the best uh, version of hosted Kubernetes of around just because they're the closest to it. Um, but that doesn't mean that... W- I'm going to, I, I want to run my own Kubernetes and Google or AWS just because I can't use some of the features that GKE provides in AWS. Um, well, Jared, I know you're a big fan of, of cloud formation. Yes. And a bunch of folks have really settled on using Terraform and, you know, is Terraform the lowest common denominator and should we be using cloud formation or, or what? I would be fine with using Terraform just because it provides enough primitives to help. It's gotten popular enough uh, for many of the major cloud providers to provide most of their services uh, reasonably well. I mean, even with cloud formations, you run into things where, especially if it's a new AWS service, 
even cloud formations doesn't support it yet, or it doesn't support every option. And there's times where Ter- Terraform actually supports it better than cloud formations. So as much as I like to to be rude to Terraform about its way of implementing and handling multi-cloud, multi-container, or multi-cloud, multi-primitive things, it does give you a common language in which to describe your Amazon resources and your GCP resources and your Azure resources. And even if they're not exactly the same, you have <laughs> one set of frameworks and one Git repository <laughs> that has your code in it. I like Terraform a lot it's because a really cool it works tool. well with so many different things and it does have that language that you can use to express your infrastructure and that's really super powerful um but one of the one of the things i look back on and kind of rue the day i ever thought this was i first learned terraform using that to manage uh gcp the google cloud platform and there are all these kind of weird isms about how how the resources interacted that were kind of I thought interesting and weird. And I thought, you know, surely uh, Terraform was designed first with AWS. Surely the AWS uh, provider is much higher quality. And now I've changed clients a bunch of times since then, and I'm now primarily using AWS with Terraform. And, yeah, it's it's not any better. The well, design I- of your uh, of the Terraform provider is an incredibly rare art to do it well. And I was about to say, it's it really comes down to the provider, and Google has put a lot of effort into their Terraform provider just because they don't have a cloud formations to fall back on. Amazon, you know, if Amazon's official stance would probably be, oh, you need you should use cloud formations. That's why we have it there. Google is definitely yeah, putting a lot of GCP effort. GCP is in the Terraform uh, uh, bandwagon yep. there. And the Terraform is such a powerful tool. Folks look at it as this is the tool to be cloud agnostic. This is the tool to be able to express everything in an infrastructure. This is the code that we work in moving forward. And it's gained a lot of traction as the one tool that does everything. And that's why I I want to pull out the red flag. I still agree that Terraform is probably the best tool for building cloud infrastructure. I think that statement is pretty safe. I'd back that up for quite a long ways. That if you're deploying infrastructure, Terraform is the tool that I would reach for. And it would take a lot to get me off of that for infrastructure deployment. I'd agree agree with that. Now for application configuration, for orchestration, for other things, no. But in terms of I want to define the way my networks and my services and my resources interact with each other and at the, at the base level and where things are, yeah, Terraform is a very reasonable choice. And having a single set of um, configuration files, even if they're pointing at different resources and different, different types and different objects, having it expressed in a common configuration language is probably a good choice. Well, I think it's pretty evident by the fact that for most of the resources, you know, for in, for your infrastructure, you don't. It doesn't have an ex- way of expressing the configuration down to the lowest level. Especially, uh, you know, if you're run, spinning up a VM, it, there's not much in there for telling it what you're putting on that VM, other than which AMI you use. 
it's that's just not what it was designed for and if you're trying to make it be your one-all be-all you're using it wrong yeah but but this episode is not about why is terraform a good or a bad tool right um there's there's other pieces to the multi-cloud or the cloud agnostic decision and one of the reasons is why would you want to do it in the first place and the obvious thing that comes to mind is Amazon's had a number of high-profile outages. Google's had, over the last 12 months, a number of large networking issues. Um, I know that IBM had a power issue, what, six, eight months ago? There was there have been Cloudflare outages. had a massive outage if you're looking at CDNs. Exactly. So even though the cloud providers are huge and they are really good at what they do, they have outages from time to time. And when they have an outage, you suffer if the only place you are in is US East 1 and you're relying on endpoints <laughs> that only exist there. And now... Well, you're cooked. So having a multi-zone, multi-region, multi-cloud deployment or architecture can be really helpful. And when I was reading up on this, there's the cloud agnostic definition varied between, oh, I can run my stuff anywhere and I can pull up stakes and switch clouds to no, it's so that I'm running in two different clouds the same way. And this this is exactly where I've, I differ on my interpretation of it in, well, not differ on my interpretation, but I agree with both. I have, I think you should, if you're big enough to need it, run your stuff into two different providers or more. But I don't think you should be running your stuff so that you, the same code spins it up in both places because you won't be taking advantage of all the features. And I think it's, your the goal is to have it run the same, but I don't think you can get there. You'll spend so tool. much time building that solution that you won't have a product. Right. The whole right. the whole reason you choose a provider is to abstract the, the let them manage your resources, your infrastructure resources, and then if you have to turn right around and start building your own Kubernetes cluster on top of raw EC2 or GCE instances, you just lost some of the benefit of going to a cloud provider. And I think it's important to sort of suss apart our requirements for failure and resiliency, that we find the line between I need to be multi-zonal, multi-region in my cloud provider, and the line that we need to cross, the requirements that we need to have to also be multi-provider as well. Um, just being multi-provider because it's it's the buzzword of the of the week isn't a good idea. We should have a plan of of what conditions need to happen that we want to stand up the GCP version of our app because Amazon is no longer functional. Rather I, I than agree. just conforming to the buzzwords. And that's a good thing. And like to sit down and make a plan for how your app handles certain failure scenarios and can you run in like a partial state like uh, you know, maybe if it's just have a status page or have a landing page that functions on a static, uh, you know, across GCS or um, S3, that is can be up if AWS is down or GCP is down, uh, versus just being a complete, you know, there's no response. Well, this is one of those times where this is hard for us to say because this isn't a technical decision. This is a business decision. Exactly. The easiest case that comes to mind for me is if you are, let's say you're archiving sensitive data, regulatory data into Glacier because Glacier meets your auditor's requirements for storage and retention. 
but you really need to deploy in a GCP region because they have an agreement with some particular government somewhere about data safety and data location. So now you have to figure out how do you want to skin this cat? Do you need to keep all of your logs in one place? Do you need to have the customer data in the databases on the live servers in another, pl- in another provider? How do you want to go about this? And that's probably kind of a weird example because customer data probably has to be segmented into some kind of archiving system with that particular customer. But when you look at those kinds of situations where you have the different parts of the company looking at different things, especially when it comes to like a legal presence or a legal requirement for one organization or one governmental entity versus another, you can find yourself in a place where you have to run in two different clouds. And that is not a technical decision at all. That is entirely a business and a legal decision that you accept the input of that of those offices and you say, okay, well, FedRAMP says we have to be in this particular Amazon region in Northern Virginia, and that's the only place that can be. But Russia says we have to have their data in this particular place where China's China has a bunch of regulations about um, where their, their data lives. So if you're doing business in China at IT tech business, you're basically forced into uh, using their providers and their providers are much more favored. So having your application run out of those networks makes your application probably work a lot better for your customers you're appealing to. So depending on how big you are, yeah. So bear with me for a second. I think I've noticed a pattern in the folks that talk about wanting to be cloud agnostic and the folks that talk about, hey, do you realize how hard this can be? And every time I've been in a conversation with somebody that really wanted to focus on being cloud agnostic, I've noticed that that person tends to be more kind of on the developer side of the software engineering spectrum where I am definitely more on the infrastructure side of that spectrum. So I come to the to the table and I'm thinking about how do we set up your VPCs, your identity and access management, uh, roles and security, MFA. How do I organize your billing and container image security? All those details that a cloud provider handles. And I think... Uh, a more developer-oriented person probably comes to the table with, I want to be able to write my app in one concentric way and build an image and be able to publish that image, have that run on my laptop, have that run in the cloud, have that run on our backup site, and not have to make weird, funky changes depending on how the app is deployed in whatever provider. And I'm really thinking that the point of view that you have of this cloud agnostic problem really defines very much how you see it. From the infrastructure side, there's lots of details that we can't make agnostic at this point because the the providers we have are the proprietary Unixes of our day. Whereas the developer side of the table really has the upper hand here, they probably want to make containers and make sure their stuff works in a declarative way. We have Kubernetes, which works basically the same in most providers and gives that side of the table a lot of power here. And honestly, the developers aren't wrong. No. Like, they have the right of this. They have the the better, more logical... 
honestly just this the simpler more direct and more supportable version they have this simpler problem well in in some ways they do because once once you can get your application to fit inside a docker container once you can get that particular thing done it makes the testing cycle it makes the deployment cycle it makes the life cycle of the app once it's been deployed and upgraded and, and decommissioned it makes that so much more straightforward and so much easier i'm not saying it's easier or straightforward but it's better than it used to be it's so much better than it used to be but on the infrastructure side we still have to deal with all of the plumbing that goes underneath it that holds up the orchestration container platform for those <laughs> containers that they're developing yes so they're right in wanting to do it the way they're doing it they're absolutely right and we need to be working towards how do we figure out the least painful way to make all of that work in a supportable, secure, cost-effective manner. Unfortunately, I don't think that having one, one repo, one infrastructure tool that just does everything magically is that solution. But Kubernetes is obviously the solution. And then you go to a cloud provider like IBM that is very aggressive about their, their upgrade cycles. Um, I want to say they run th- three versions. No, it's they, this were the last the last two major versions. So you have eighteen months. Every eighteen months, you have to be upgrading to the next version of Kubernetes if you kind of do big jumps at a time. And and Kubernetes moves fast. I can understand that upgrade cycle. Yeah, I mean because they want to they want to get rid of the old insecure things. They want to move on to the newer, better APIs that are more efficient for them to run, which I totally understand. And they're putting a lot of energy and resources into 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 the upstream Kubernetes Kubernetes community, but it also means that as somebody who uses the platform, you've got to keep moving. And for the infrastructure teams, that is a lot of extra work. Yeah, for me, the whole concept of being cloud agnostic, to me, I translate that into you're talking about Kubernetes, and. As the infrastructure team, we've got to come in and be able to support running those Kubernetes clusters and the ancillary services, services um, which are very much not cloud agnostic. Well, but it, as long as people are okay with that, like, you know, someone says, I want to be cloud agnostic, and they're, they're okay with running in Kubernetes, and especially running in a provider's provided version of Kubernetes, that would be totally cool. It's just when it's like, well, we want to be agnostic, but we don't want to depend on a provider specific service uh, and not, not just for Kubernetes, but for anything else, Kafka uh, database, whatever. And they would like for everything to be, you know, provisioned from by their own team. Let me show you how Kubernetes actually works by <laughs> wrapping all of the uh, resources that the platform provider supplies. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that it, that sounds really simple. But once you get into actually trying to deploy like a multi-master HA database yourself in Kubernetes without using an external paid-for tool and you're just doing it yourself because, hey, we, we, can, we, run, we can run MySQL or Kafka or whatever it is, it's not impossible, but it's a lot more complicated than you think. There's, there's a lot of benefit you get from using something like RDS where you set up a schedule and it just backs up your database to S3 and you don't think about it again. Versus, okay, which master failed and how does that work? And are we using MySQL 8? Are we using Postgres? What's going on? It gets a lot more complicated, a lot faster than than people assume. So the idea that you scale a bit and you realize you need a MySQL subject matter expert on the team. 
So you run your workload in Kubernetes, but then you use the cloud provider's data stores. And suddenly you're back into that old loop that, okay, Amazon has RDS, which is great, and Google has, I forget what Google's database name is, and I'm sure that Microsoft has their own. And now you're back into, okay, are there semantic differences between the group? Can we really just abstract a MySQL socket? Do they all listen on the same port? How does IAM work? How does IAC work? Like, how do how do we get those pieces turned on? And that's where, as an infrastructure team, you have to be on the ball. And that's a smart question to ask, at what level? I, I liken this a lot to companies' approach to DR models. There are companies that say, our disaster recovery model is, we will bootstrap a new environment over there somewhere, over there being either a cloud or another data center or wherever. And we will, we have all these plans that we've never actually tried and we're going to do it someday versus we're running a hot standby on a limited budget. And all we have to do is basically add enough money to make it a full featured environment. If you, if you're running that second model where you're actually doing it constantly, you're much more likely to survive an outage. So if you're trying to do cloud agnostic and you're actually running in Google and in AWS or in, pick any two cloud providers really, you're much more likely to be able to pull off the, oh no, Amazon's having a problem. We survived it and we didn't have an outage for our users. We, things slowed down, but things weren't broken because you're already running. If it's your DR plan that you've never actually tried, oh, I feel for you. Well, depends on when somebody said that we wanted to be cloud agnostic, where they're drawing that line. At what level are you being cloud agnostic? And, you know, at the developer level, it's not so bad. But at the operations level, it's very tough. And are you using a tool to make it so that you can do everything and then you're... complex problems are complex. And I think so many of us have been brought brought up, found our teeth in this world of open source software where we're sort of taught and we build each other up on the concept that we don't have to be locked in. We can build things with open source tools and wind up with a superior platform. And that open source arena that we play in today is is built upon decades and decades of work where we had where we used to have very proprietary unixes that had some of these very similar problems um and that's why i keep going back to to the cloud platform providers we have today are the proprietary unixes of your just our own version of them and so we come into this problem with that with that OSS mentality, and we kind of have to be able to step back and realize what tools we're working with. I think we will. I think isn't a that, lot isn't of that, that is Terraform? Kubernetes. <laughs> well, honestly, I think it, it is a combination of Terraform and Kubernetes. I think it's, I think it's both. Terraform has definitely won mindshare for your infrastructure provisioning tool. And Kubernetes has run, won the mind share for your service discovery and operational, you know, scheduling and orchestration tool. And it very cleanly separates the two. Why isn't Kubernetes the answer here, Jared? I'm a big fan of Kubernetes, but obviously it's not a solution for everything. Y- you know, um, I guess we haven't really talked about Lambda or uh, uh, functions at all. Uh, 
and I'm wondering if fast. that's yeah, well. There, there is that. <laughs> I mean, I'm more. I guess I'm more saying that I think that n- Kubernetes is definitely a solution today. But I'm wondering if in the future will workloads shift to a more uh, function based environment, uh, which would even allow for. I guess what I'm thinking about is you've got an SPA or a single page application that only communicates to APIs, which can be serviced from functions. At that point, you can really easily abstract cloud providers. And uh, the only, <laughs> air quotes, the only difficult thing is state shared between the providers. <laughs> you know, I think that's a really valid point. The The serverless model of, of doing APIs like that is really big. There are lots of people that are pushing it. I don't see that much of it being sucked into Kubernetes, which I'm kind of surprised about. But my, if I were to give you a prediction of what would a cloud platform provider look like in five or 10 years from now, I think it would look a lot like Kubernetes with some of the, with some of the ancillary services that, that we tend to run outside of Kubernetes having good solutions for, like um, not having to run OpenVPN to be able to get into your Kubernetes network. Um, but that's my belief that in the future we'll have Terraform, we'll have Kubernetes, we'll have a, a tool that manages our deployments in Kubernetes. Or or maybe we're also wrong in the terms of, you know, maybe there's a another database technology that uh, is in the is in the looming and uh, its clustering is very easy. It's it's something that you can easily run in Kubernetes. And and as you mentioned, Kubernetes is kind of here to stay. But then applications kind of sh- shift to more serverless uh, environment, and then you can you can run more of your infrastructure pieces on top of Kubernetes, and you don't have to use so many vendor services. So I really like Lambda and serverless in general. But I always fear when I see it that it allows the the explosion of complexity that we got out of doing microservices, I fear is magnified yet again by doing serverless. Because it allows you to take your application that was running in a Docker container and say each code path has its own Lambda function so we can optimize you know for cost. So the really expensive functions only get executed a couple of times and all the common stuff, you know, effectively taking something like log stash or doing log processing you can go in one direction and say we're gonna move to file beat and make it really fast and tiny and then we'll spin up a couple of lambdas here and there for the really expensive transformations that we don't run all that frequently and now connecting all that glue together and making sure you keep track of which lambdas triggering when and who updates and how they update it's adding yet another layer yet another whole piece of complexity on the top and if that gets solved in a satisfactory way, I could see that really having an impact on Kubernetes and kind of the, the direction the market's going. But if they can't solve it, mm, I don't know. The more I've used Lambdas, the more I see a lot of future there. The The speed at which you can deploy, the, the simplicity of it does one thing and off it goes. It really does simplify a lot of things, but you're right. It's going the explosion of microservices and the complexity it brought in discovering and managing and everything else is. Yeah, your microservices is going to be made of 
this set of 2530 lambda right. functions. And it just it takes the complexity out of the application and moves it to Elsewhere. us again. <laughs> yeah, and and again, if you move into Lambda, that's not directly portable into other cloud runtimes. So you're that's back not into cloud this agnostic. idea. <laughs> exactly. And so now you're in the, okay, well, do I need to make sure that I'm writing all of my Lambda functions in a way that if we are spinning them up in... And I don't even know the names of the other services that are serverless. I, I know that Google has one, but I can't think of his name offhand. Can either of you, any of Cloud you, tell run? me? Or is that their container? Oh, it's just functions. Okay. Yeah, they, I think it's just functions, yeah. And do you have the same, you know, base level imports you have to do to make the code work? Or do they operate a little bit differently? Did they settle upon, by accident or by purpose, a, a common entryway? I think most of them at this point are starting to support Docker containers. Okay, well that that's a little bit better at least. So you have that level. Of course, you have the easy problem taken care of. <laughs> but and yeah, controlling those things are are complex. And you're right back into how do I deploy and manage a cloud agnostic version of that? And these are hard problems. So think about carefully what tools you use because that will very quickly limit your ability to do cloud agnostic deployments if your idea is that cloud agnostic is your DR strategy and it will very quickly limit your ability to run simultaneously multi-clouds if you're trying to you know hit governmental or other regulatory compliance reasons or even just we really like this provider in Europe and we really don't like how they operate in the US well that's that's another piece to look at we would like to thank 42 lines for sponsoring this episode 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we recorded or topics you would like us to cover leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Where do I get my infinite band support? <laughs>